The biggest double horror show in history. I drink your blood and I eat your skin. Men become animals and eat their victims. I drink your blood and I eat your skin. zombies ravaging a peaceful countryside. I drink your blood and I eat your skin. Will make your blood curdle and your skin crawl. But you will sit there and suffer through the tortures of the damned. where we look at everything from art house to grindhouse, mainstream to obscure, the forgotten, and the unforgettable. Sorry for the delay, but I needed to take a small break. I had to juggle my time between watching Jerry Gross films to record for this episode, and also watch some classics from director Annie Sedaris. For my yearly guest appearance on the awesome podcast, Wrong Reel, with the cinematically enthusiastic James Hancock. That episode for Wrong Reel should drop on Monday, the same day as this episode on Jerry Gross. A good chance to get a double dose of exploitation goodness. As mentioned previously, this episode, number 48, of the Mega the Movies podcast will look at director-producer Jerry Gross. Not only was Gross a filmmaker in his own right, but he earned a strong reputation as a distributor. 
willing to present films others weren't willing to support. Gross, much like his predecessors, Dwayne Esper, William Castle, and David F. Friedman, there were seldom any boundaries he wasn't willing to break through. At the age of nine, he wrote to Republic Pictures under the guise of a theater owner asking for promotional materials and movie stills. In his 20s, he founded Jerry Gross Productions, based out of the building of a shipping company. He loaded trucks during the day while holding auditions at night for his first feature film, Girl on a Chain Gang. At the auditions, he met Arlene Farber, which was the start of a lifelong friendship. Some search results show Farber as Gross's wife at one point. You'll see Farber appear in many of the films he directed, produced, and distributed. Gross loved theatrical gimmicks akin to William Castle. For the release of Girl on a Chain Gang, he had actors dressed as redneck sheriffs with police dogs in the theater lobby. The success of the film allowed him to relocate to an actual office, and he connected with Sam Sherman, the producing partner of Al Adamson, the subject of episode 44. Gross would go on to make a few more films before strictly serving as a distributor. After success, Gross would leave films upon the bankruptcy of Jerry Gross Productions. Gross would pass away on November 20th, 2002. Spoilers abound. Now let's get into the movies. We got movies! is informed by his agent, Duncan Fairchild, that he is going to the Caribbean to help with the writing of his next book. Duncan and his wife, Coral, will be joining him. Shortly after arriving, Harris is attacked by a wandering stranger. The mysterious man decapitates a fisherman, but runs away as the authorities arrive. The head of the local law enforcement, Charles Bentley, assures Harris and his group that they're safe under his watch. Harris, Duncan, and Coral are staying at the house of Jeannie and her father, Dr. Billadou. Dr. Billadou is searching for a cure for cancer, but could his research somehow be connected to the zombie plague taking over the island, or is voodoo actually responsible? I Eat Your Skin was a film originally under the number of titles Zombies, Zombie Bloodbath, and Voodoo Bloodbath. The film was finished in 1964, but no distributor bought it. It wasn't until the film was produced by Jerry Gross in 1971 that it was shown to audiences as half of a double bill with I Drink Your Blood, another Gross distributed film. Showing both films together was a requirement put on the theaters by Gross. The look of the zombies may elicit laughs akin to the makeup job for the zombies in Jess Franco's Oasis of the Zombies. Caked on makeup, ping pong eyeballs... The use of lap dissolves for the zombie transformations are cheesy, but in a 1940s universal horror kind of way. The movie has its share of shocks. When it comes to violence, it straddles the line between typical horror films of the time, a la Hammer, and the gore flicks of Herschel Gordon Lewis. 
The decapitation of the fisherman was a surprise for a 60s horror film. The kamikaze zombie carrying a box of dynamite and walking into a plane was another surprise. Del Tenney wrote, produced, and directed I Eat Your Skin. He was an independent filmmaker, which likely made it difficult for a zombie bloodbath to find a producer. Tenney was willing to go the extra mile in offering violence, but without the comical antics associated with Herschel Gordon Lewis. Tenney may be best known for a horror of Beach Party, where you have the cheap creature of the Black Lagoon knockoffs with Johnsonville sausages in their mouth. William Joyce played the sex pot author, Tom Harris. Joyce puts on the Ruck Hudson sex appeal. It's easy to believe women would swoon over this guy. Joyce was a major TV actor. Rawhide, The Rockford Files, Knight Rider, Baywatch, and Hunter are the highlights of his credits. Heather Hewitt was the love interest, Janine Billadieu. She has a homely charm and plays well off of Joyce. Hewitt had sporadic performances. Her top credits were two appearances on Fantasy Island and the political comedy Dave with Kevin Kline. Walter Coy was Charles Bentley, the lawman on the island. Coy doesn't stand out, coming off as fairly bland. Coy was another major TV player. The Lone Ranger, Have Gun Will Travel, Rawhide, Perry Mason, Bonanza, and others. Dan Stapleton, Robert Stanton, and Betty Hyatt Linton round out the supporting cast. I Eat Your Skin was a modest horror effort from Del Tenney. Some nice shocks, sudden violence, and amusing makeup effects add up to a well-rounded zombie film. Worth a look if you enjoyed Horror of Beach Party. Satan-worshipping hippies are engaging in a dark ceremony under the leadership of Horace Bones. Watching them is Sylvia, a local girl. They find her and proceed to beat her. It's also implied they raped her. The next morning, she manages to make her way back to town. Mildred, a shopkeeper, and Pete, Sylvia's younger brother, find her in the middle of town. Mildred thinks the local construction crew is responsible, but Pete and his grandfather later find out it was the hippies. The grandfather, Doc Banner, confronts the group, but is subdued. They give him LSD shortly before Peter arrives to take Banner home. One of the other cult members, Sue Lin, intervenes, allowing Pete and Banner to leave freely. Later that night, Pete kills a rabid dog. He comes up with his plan for revenge on the hippies. He uses a syringe to take blood from the dead dog, then fills pies at Mildred's shop with the rabid blood and gives them to the hippies. This starts a chain reaction as members of the cult become rabid, one of whom infects the construction crew. Soon, the town is overrun with rabid attackers. The local authorities aren't able to handle the situation and call in for outside help from the nearby towns. But will it be too late? The origins of this film are similar to that of A Nightmare on Elm Street in that an incident in a foreign country was the catalyst of an idea. 
director David E. Durston was commissioned by Jerry Gross to come up with a horror movie that can outdo Romero's Night of the Living Dead, but he couldn't use traditional monsters like werewolves and vampires. It had to be a new creation. Durston was clueless as to what he could come up with until he saw a story in a newspaper of a school in Iran that was attacked by a pack of rabid wolves. Durston was so taken in by this story, he reached out to a doctor that was knowledgeable of rabies and even visited the village the wolf attack took place. The doctor showed Durston footage of rabid children locked in cages that were later treated. Rabid humans was a new concept for a horror film that Durston was looking for. At around the same time, there was the Charles Manson trial. Durston was inspired by Manson and he added the character of Horace. Horace represented a real threat to the small town, a threat only compounded with the epidemic of rabies. The final script was approved by Gross and Durston went to shoot the film. The film was shot in Sharon Springs, New York, about 50 miles west from Albany. Sharon Springs used to be a popular summer spot, but when shooting started, it was a ghost town. The film crew was permitted to use any of the vacant buildings as they saw fit since they were going to be torn down anyway. There was growing tension between director Durston and the local townsfolk. The locals didn't understand the movie that was being made and misinterpreted Durston's interactions with the cast. They thought he was being abusive and demanded he be removed from the production. Thankfully, Durston became good friends with the sheriff, even casting him for the ending of the film. I Drink Your Blood has a crazy history with the post-production and theatrical releases. Originally, the film was titled Phobia, referencing the hydrophobia displayed by the rabbit attackers. Jerry Gross later changed the title to I Drink Your Blood, which Durston resisted until the new title led to the film being a financial success. Gross also felt that there were sequences and scenes that were too comedic. He wanted a straight horror film with no humor. Durston felt that they were necessary to give the audience time to breathe between horror moments. Gross removed the humor scenes, which had been brought back as a special feature for the DVD, thanks to Grindhouse releasing. The film, according to Durston, was the first film to be rated X for violence and gore. Gross still sent the film to the theaters anyway. No theater was willing to play the X-rated edit of the film. Instead of editing the movie for the 280-plus theaters it was billed to play, Gross told the theaters to have the projectionists edit the film to fit their individual community standards, which may account for why there are so many different edits of this film. The original ending of the film has been heralded as blood-soaked, according to Grindhouse Releasing. In this ending, one of the heroes was killed by his love interest, Mildred, who was infected. This makes sense since we see an infected bite her on the wrist, so we assume she's affected. But in the final edit, we're led to believe that skin wasn't broken in the bite and she's not infected. In this cut ending, we see some slight blood splatter after the rabid Mildred shoots her boyfriend. The gore has been oversold for this sequence. Some have accused the film of animal cruelty for a scene depicting the cult members killing rats in the abandoned hotel. Durston assures this wasn't really the case. Live rats were unharmed. A few would later be reused for the horror film Willard. The dead rats were brought in from a medical facility, but had to be sprayed, painted brown to match the live rats. I Drink Your Blood was the best-known film for writer-director David E. Durston. His other films were mostly erotic-oriented fare. From the supplemental materials of the Grindhouse release DVD, he was a charismatic, excitable, good-natured man. He had a great rapport with his actors. 
This seems to be the case with a lot of directors who make extreme films, be it Joe D'Amato or Wes Craven. Clay Pitts provided the ominous music score for the film. He would be a frequent collaborator with Jerry Gross, working on a total of five films for him. I know I've heard the theme for I Drink Your Blood in one of Rob Zombie's songs, but that's like looking for a needle among multiple haystacks. Pascar Roy Chowdhury was the evil Horace Bones, the cult leader. He can come off as sinister, but can flip the switch and be totally charming. His other credits were Indian films. In the commentary, he had some great back and forth with Durston. Rhonda Fultz played the pregnant Molly. A pregnant woman in a horror film is never a good sign, especially if you've seen Anthropophagus or Who Could Kill a Child. I Drink Your Blood is no exception. Molly ends up being one of the true tragedies of the film. She didn't engage in the violence of the cult. She comes off as a girl who was along for the ride. You see a real sadness when she realizes she's infected and worries what she might do to her own baby. She, above the other characters, clues the audience in on the gravity of the situation. George Patterson as Rolo ends up being one of the serious threats. He is the first to engage in the homicidal acts when the cult is infected. He has these eyes that freaked me out. He plays up the insanity of the rabies. Patterson will later appear in the cult horror film, God Told Me To. This is the first time, but not the last time, we'll see Arlene Farber. I went into her background in the opening. She does a fine job as Sylvia, and she doesn't play up the catatonia of Barbara from Night of the Living Dead. Farber's biggest credit would be playing Angie Boca, the wife of Tony Lopianco's Sal Boca in The French Connection. Lynn Lowry made her feature film debut when I Drink Your Blood. Durston was smitten with her, but there was no part for her to play in the script. She was cast as a mute, which made it easy for her to be included in the shoot and not require any extensive rewrites. Lowry would go on to have an expansive career, working with the likes of George Romero, David Cronenberg, Lloyd Kaufman, Paul Schrader, and Debbie Rashan. Tide Kearney, the reluctant cult member Andy, had a decent career for himself as well. Stand and Deliver, starring Edward James Olmos and Lou Diamond Phillips, In the Line of Fire with Clint Eastwood, Casino for Martin Scorsese, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas for Terry Gilliam. Not bad. Richard Buller was Doc Banner and had very few film credits. He was a veteran of Broadway, enjoying a 45-year career. Jane Wong, Riley Mills, Elizabeth Marner Brooks, and John Damon round out the supporting cast. I Drink Your Blood, despite the title, is an enjoyable horror film that exemplifies the exploitation era of the late 1960s, early 70s. There's gore, nudity, violence... Elements that made for strong profits at the Grindhouse Theatres. It's a horror film worth taking a look at. Here come the daylight, it's making me sad. Here come the sunlight, making me sad. Had a good time last night, best I ever had. Here come the sunshine, it's making me sad. Dracula is killed, leaving the throne for the king of the netherworld unfulfilled. The son of Count Dracula, Count Down, uh, God, that's a bad pun, is the next to take the throne. 
In a matter of days, Merlin will oversee the coronation of Down as the new king of the netherworld. But the assassin of Down's father has his sights set on him. During his time in England, he stops by a local tavern. He refuses alcohol and cigarettes. Instead, he prefers to rock out on stage. Backing him are the likes of Peter Frampton, John Bonham of Led Zeppelin, and Keith Moon of The Who. Other times, Down comes off as passive, uninterested in the prospect of being king of the netherworld. When Down meets Amber, a human woman, he falls in love. He's willing to refuse the crown in order to spend his remaining mortal days with Amber. His old family rival, Van Helsing, is all the more willing to oblige, and Merlin supports his decision. Son of Dracula comes off as a campy British horror musical. Not quite the extent of a Rocky Horror Picture Show, nor the fun-filled antics of the Monster Club. The inconsistent tone will affect how a viewer takes in this film. But I can't blame Gross for taking in this film, given the star power of the director and the cast. The music of Harry Nilsson is put to effective use as a means of conveying the emotional state of Down. This is a benefit considering Nilsson as an actor is rather wooden. The film features some of my favorite Nilsson songs. There's Jump Into the Fire. Francis was a major player in British horror, directing a number of amicus anthology films, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, The Torture Garden, and the 1972 adaptation of Tales from the Crypt. He did some uncredited directorial work for The Day of the Triffids. He dipped his toe in the lake of Hammer films with Dracula Has Risen from the Grave. Harry Nilsson plays Countdown. Uh, again, that's really bad. Uh, Nilsson doesn't impress as an actor. Yet, his musical talents are undeniable. Everybody's Talking, Coconut, One, as well as the classic theme for Courtship of Eddie's Father. Ringo Starr plays Merlin in a deadpan fashion. This casting alone makes the film worth seeing just for the absurdity of it. I know I shouldn't have to say this, but he is the famous drummer of the Beatles. Sorry, Pete Best. Character actor Freddie Jones plays the suspicious Baron Frankenstein. It's not difficult to figure out he's the assassin of Count Dracula. How do I know? Because he's played by Freddie Jones. 
Jones's credits include Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed and Satanic Rites of Dracula for Hammer, British thriller Juggernaut, The Elephant Man, and Dune for David Lynch. One of my favorite fantasy films, Crawl. Uh, there was also Firestarter with Drew Barrymore, Young Sherlock Holmes, Eric the Viking for Terry Jones, and uh, the somewhat forgettable Bordello of Blood. Son of Dracula can be a hard watch. Nilsson doesn't captivate as the lead, but Star and Jones are amusing to watch. The soundscape is great. It's uneven with the tone, but if you're a Nilsson fan, then save it for a rainy day. There are circles to every story And two sides to every side Wish I didn't have to worry About doing what is right I promise to stay with you But now I want to leave And maybe some kind stranger will keep you company. Jimmy Wheeler is a photojournalist taking a cross-country trip. On the way to his destination, he takes a back road and sees a young boy carrying groceries. Wheeler offers the boy to drive him home to make the trip easier. The little boy, Gilbert, takes up Wheeler on the drive and directs him to where he lives. Wheeler ends up driving deeper into the swampy bayou roads in Tennessee. After driving through the treacherous terrain, he finds a large house in the midst of the swamp. This is where Gilbert lives with his family. Gilbert introduces Wheeler to his siblings, headed by the eldest, Peter. Wheeler soon finds himself in a tense situation, along with another adult, Carol Ann, who is taking on a motherly role. The kids soon act like Wheeler is their father. Turns out the kids lure adults to the house using Gilbert and hold them here in the hopes of having a family again. Also, Wheeler and Carol Ann are not the first adults to be trapped. But what happened to the other adults that arrived before them? Jerry Gross produced this made-for-TV movie featuring Arlene Farber as one of the Backwoods siblings. What made All the Kind Strangers a significant movie was that it was an ABC movie of the week. The ABC Movie of the Week featured one-off specials and TV pilots. This was at a time when ABC was producing movies that rivaled that of cinematic offerings. The TV movies produced read like a list of some of the best television ever made. Steven Spielberg's adaptation of Richard Matheson's Duel, the Over the Hill Gang movies, Brian's Song with James Caan and Billy Dee Williams, The Night Stalker and Night Strangler with Darren McGavin as Carl Koljak, The Trilogy of Terror starring Karen Black, The Immortal with Christopher George, The Bounty Man, which I discussed in Episode 7 as part of the first volume of the Grindhouse Experience box set, there was also Kung Fu with David Carradine, and The Six Million Dollar Man with Lee Majors. The film stands out among the films produced by Gross. It lacks the violence and gore of films like I Eat Your Skin and I Drink Your Blood, but it does manage to build tension and make great use of the backwoods atmosphere. There is a real sense of isolation in the Tennessee Bayou locale. Burt Kennedy was the director of this film. He started out directing television for shows like Lawman and Combat. From the mid-1960s to the mid-1970s, he worked on Western films before coming back to television. 
Yet, his most well-known credit would be directing Hulk Hogan in the family comedy Suburban Commando. I was frozen today! Clyde Ware wrote the script and had a strong TV career himself. He wrote for established shows like Man From U.N.C.L.E., Rawhide, Gunsmoke, and Airwolf. Film writing credits include the bad comedy Catalina Caper, featured prominently for Mystery Science Theater 3000. State C. Keach has been one of the most venerable character actors for the past 56 years. Slave of the Cannibal God, Up in Smoke, Nice Dreams, Mike Hammer, Batman, Mask of the Phantasm, Escape from L.A., American History X, and The Simpsons, among many others. As Wheeler, he manages to portray an everyman, one that anybody can relate to. Samantha Egger plays Carol Ann, the other adult lured in by Gilbert. Egger's eyes do a great job of selling the fear she's experiencing, being held captive by the children. Egger also had a long career going back and forth between film and television. The original Dr. Doolittle, Columbo, Starsky and Hutch, Murder, She Wrote, Magnum P.I., Star Trek The Next Generation, The Phantom with Billy Zane, Disney's Hercules, and many other roles. John Savage heads the family of kids featuring Arlene Farber, Robbie Benson, Tim Parkinson, Patty Parkinson, and John Connell. All the Kind Strangers is a throwback to an age of solid television. People say this is the golden age, but it's using the same methods as the past. Many TV shows are providing a cinematic experience and tell great stories, not unlike the TV movies of yesteryear. At the top of that period was the ABC Movie of the Week, and All the Kind Strangers stands out as one of the best. You are in a room filled with your friends, but they are all dead. Suddenly, one by one, they begin to move, to live again. What the hell are they? Zombie. How can we stop them? take this. Zombie. They are decaying. They are missing from their graves. Shut up! Zombie. It's shocking. That's why no one under 17 will be admitted. Save me. Zombie opens with a mysterious sailboat floating aimlessly in New York Harbor, nearly colliding with the Staten Island Ferry. A pair of harbor patrolmen pull up to the boat and climb on board to investigate. While looking around, one of the officers is suddenly attacked by a man hiding on the boat. The officer is bitten in the neck, quickly bleeding to death. Then the attacker goes after the other officer. The attacker is shot and falls overboard. None of the shots hit the attacker in the head. The dead officer is soon taken to the medical examiner for an autopsy. As the examiner's prep, he begins to show signs of movement. The police investigation finds the boat belongs to the father of Anne Bowles. Her father disappeared shortly after a visit to the Antilles. She encounters news reporter Peter West, who turns up with information about the whereabouts of Anne's missing father. They make plans to fly to the Caribbean. Anne and Peter meet a couple on holiday who are taking a tour of the islands. Peter requests a ride to Matul, an island known to be cursed. The couple reluctantly agrees to take Anne and Peter with them. While the group searches for Matul, Dr. Menard is studying a bizarre disease that has taken over the island. He is determined to find out what is going on despite the vehement protests of his wife. Dr. Menard's assistant thinks it's voodoo, but Menard, a man of science, refuses to believe that's the case. Lucio Fulci's Zombie, also known as Zombie 2 and Zombie Flesh Eaters, was the first Fulci film for many. 
I remember going to Hollywood Video and seeing the box cover for Zombie, the iconic Worm Eye, and the great tagline, We Are Going to Eat You. If this is the case for you, then you have Jerry Gross to thank for that. He distributed Zombie in America. In the wake of the release and worldwide monster success of George A. Romero's Dawn of the Dead, Zombie stands out as the first high-profile film distributed to cash in on the success of the Romero classic. Dawn of the Dead was released in foreign markets as Zombie, which led to Fulci's Zombie being distributed in some markets as Zombie 2, giving a false impression that Fulci's film was related to Romero's film. Uh, a common a common occurrence in Italian uh, cinema distribution. Plot-wise, the film takes cues more from Jacques Tourner's I Watch With a Zombie or the Bela Lugosi classic White Zombie for the atmosphere and adhering to the geographical origins of the zombie lore. Lucio Fulci's Zombie is an endearing horror gem for a plethora of reasons. There is the classic underwater fight between a zombie and a shark, Thankfully, the contest doesn't yield the asylum-caliber concept of a zombie shark. However, the underwater zombie does implicate how New York was overrun at the end of the film. Then there's the infamous eye-piercing scene that was so effective, even effects master Tom Savini admired the execution. When I saw a zombie, that was, that was in the days of, we had just done Dawn of the Dead, you know? So to me, it was like, well, what are they going to do? How are they going to top us, you know? That eyeball. Going through an eye. Even Dawn of the Dead, you know, the guy who's on me gets a screwdriver through his ear, you know, fine, fine, fine. That, it was slow, you know, so you had all this time to be scared and waiting for it, and then it paid off. I mean, it actually goes in. The scene shows Fulci's knack for building tension and suspense to the point of inducing anguish on the viewer and showing the payoff of the moment as well. Worm Eye, the box cover zombie, makes a grand entrance with a dreamlike quality. The geyser of blood that flows from his victim after he bites their neck adds a hyper-realism to the horror. Last, you have the closing shot of zombies walking across the Washington Street Bridge, undeniably impressive guerrilla filmmaking. You just have to ignore the traffic going below as if zombies were the norm. I discussed Lucio Fulci on a more extensive basis on episode 17 for his Gates of Hell trilogy. Fulci had directed films in multiple genres before Zombie, westerns like Silver Saddle and Four of the Apocalypse, giallo films like The Psychic, Don't Torture a Duckling and Lizard in a Woman's Skin. He made two White Fang films with Franco Nero, comedies with the duo of Franchi and Agrassi were his spin on Abbott and Costello. Early in his career, he dabbled in music comedies like Ragazzi del Jukebox and Howlers of the Dock. Fabio Frizzi worked on the score for Zombie. His main theme sets the tone perfectly. create music that ranges whether it's levity Thank you. 
The theme for Zombie would be reworked for later films like City of the Living Dead and Manhattan Baby. Frizzy would collaborate with Fulci, becoming creatively intertwined a la Hitchcock and Herman. The gore and makeup effects in this film are courtesy of Giannetto de Rossi, who previously did the effects for the Italian zombie prototype Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, aka Living Dead at Manchester Morgue, which I discussed on episode 13, Zombie Innovators and Game Changers. De Rossi also worked on other films for Fulci, City of the Living Dead, The Beyond, and House by the Cemetery. Other credits include Once Upon a Time in the West, Conan the Destroyer, Rambo 3, and Man in the Iron Mask. The use of potter's clay for the zombies were an effective change of pace from the Savini method of bluish-gray makeup. We previously mentioned male lead Ian McCulloch for episode 19, The Video Nasties, for his turn in the horror sci-fi film, Alien Contamination. This was the first of three forays by McCulloch in Italian horror. McCulloch throws on the charm as Peter West, adding some cheeky humor into a grim horror film. Tisa Farrow plays the female lead, Anne Bowles. She really sells the terror of the zombies. She puts them over big time. Farrow was also brought up in the Video Nasties episode for her similar role in Joe D'Amato's Anthropophagus. Al Cliver and Audretta Gay bring a meekness to the couple that agree to accompany Peter and Anne. You feel sympathy for them because they have no idea what awaits them on the island of Matul. I haven't seen Audretta Gay in other films, but Al Cliver was a regular in European horror, working frequently with Fulci and the infamous Jess Franco. Richard Johnson gives the film much credibility as Dr. Menard. He's well aware of the danger his wife and him are in, but he tries to maintain his determination in solving the riddle of the Matul plague. Johnson was originally the choice for James Bond by director Terence Young. He's best known for his performance as Dr. Mark Way in Robert Wise's The Haunting. Zombie is a grand example of what horror is capable of. Gory eye-catching, atmospheric. For many, including myself, this was our first impression of Fulci, and he started on the right foot with many viewers. And for that introduction, we have Jerry Gross to thank for that. In closing, Jerry Gross was a producer, director, distributor who knew how to make great movies and how to sell them as well. In addition to films we discussed here, there are plenty more to check out. Fair warning, many of them are not for the faint of heart. There's I Spit on Your Grave, Blood Beach, Johnny Got His Gun, Fritz the Cat, Baby Doll, the Mondo Kane series, Sweet Sweet Back's Badass Song, The Sadist, Teenage Mother, Dynamite Brothers, and The Hunchback of the Morgue. Maybe I'll do a part two for Mr. Gross because a number of these films are exploitation classics. And that wraps up this episode of Mac and the Movies. Thanks for listening. The next episode, number 49, will delve into the world of Jalo. Now, it would be easy to dedicate episodes to Fulci or other luminaries like Dario Argento, who is well overdue for an episode, and also Umberto Lenzi. But I'll take a look at other Jalo offerings Strip Nude for Your Killer, Blood and Black Lace, 
The Bloodstained Shadow, Autopsy, What Have You Done to Solange, and All the Colors of the Dark. That episode will drop on Monday, June 22nd. If you enjoyed this program and would like to see it grow, feel free to contribute a one-time donation via PayPal, Venmo, or Cash App. You can find me on social media through Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Inquiries and questions can be sent via Gmail. All info in the description below. Until next time, this is Mackenzie Lambert from Megan the Movies. Take care and stay safe, folks. against the coral reef. Her beautiful body is caressed by the tide. Suddenly, a decayed hand rises up as blood-drenched jaws move to bite her. The living dead walk again. Zombies, they are decaying. They are missing from their graves. They live and hunger for your flesh. There is no place you can hide. Zombie, you are what they eat. No one under 17 will be admitted. Zombie.